Welcome to the O'Reilly Podcast. I'm Jeff Lyle. This podcast episode is part of a collaboration between O'Reilly and NGINX. Our guest is Chris Stetson, head of engineering for the microservices team and the chief architect of the microservices reference architecture at NGINX. And prior to joining the company, he was a developer and architect who built many familiar websites, including the first version of Sirius Satellite Radio, Visa.com, and large parts of Microsoft.com and Lexus.com. We'll talk with Chris about the benefits of a microservices architecture and get some details on NGINX's microservices reference architecture, including its different networking models. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Jeff. Uh, thank you. I'm, I'm looking forward to the conversation. So looking at your bio, looking at your history, you've built large monolithic systems and you've built microservice-based systems. First, can you give us kind of a quick summary of what is a monolith and what is a microservices architecture? Sure. Uh, a monolith is, is an application that is structured in a classic manner. Uh, essentially, all of the functional components of your application run in a single, on a single server with all of the components running in a single, you know, virtual machine of some sort or another. Say it's, it's, you know, if you're a Java developer, it would be the Java VM. If it's, uh, you know, PHP, it's running within the fast CGI uh, environment. What, whatever it is that's, that's running the engine itself, all of the functional components of your application run in that, in that system and talk to each other via object references or, or, or method calls of one sort or another. And that, sort of defines a monolithic application. And how about microservices in a, in a nutshell? <laughs> so there, there actually is a, a couple of steps, you know, to, to microservices. And, and like most developers, I started writing uh, monolithic applications and moved to more of a, of a service-oriented application architecture where we broke apart uh, different components of the application and, and, uh, and they communicated to each other via an API or, uh, you know, uh, over a network. That approach of being able to segment big chunks of, of the application made a lot of sense and allowed, allowed you as a developer or an architect to distribute the load of the application, uh, and, and provide some, some isolation, some clarity around the boundaries between different parts of the application. Initially, uh, so applications were more rope, you know, had a lot of overhead to them. You know, if you had a Wizzle or, or uh, you know, we're using SOAP, it was a fairly heavyweight protocol for, for communicating between the components. But then REST came about and that, that sort of lightened that load and allowed uh, for applications to, to communicate um, more simply. And the idea of microservices was essentially taking that, that concept and dialing it up to 11. Um, Really breaking apart all of the functional components and having them them integrate with that clear boundary of the the API being the the uh, contract between the different the different components of of the microservice application, and and allow and really focusing on the ability to deploy independent components of the application dynamically so that that you were not having to do a, you know a full regression on the application when you do a deployment you could just deploy a single single component or scale that component independently of the entire application so under what circumstances might a monolith work for an organization and what factors would lead a company to to move to microservices the a common evolution for for uh, applications is 
when a small team is working on on the application and, and building, uh, you know, an application, it's often easier to to write it as a monolith. You don't have to build out all the infrastructure, the orchestration tools, the networking, the have that that you know define the the contracts between the the different components. Uh, when you are building out your your initial functionality of the application, and so so many developers and, and uh, teams will approach it, you know, initially as a, a monolith, with the idea that that you know there's clear uh, separation of concerns for different parts of the application that could easily be broken out. You know, whether um, in JavaScript, for example, or uh, ECMAScript, you could be creating packages that are easily separable. An app, uh, Language like like Java obviously is very object oriented, and, and your objects could be a a good seam with which to separate out the, the application into microservices. So there's a lot of different ways that you could conceive it, you know, early on in the design, even as you're building it as a monolith, but with the idea that it would separate out into into a microservice application. Typically, that evolution to microservices happens when uh, your team starts growing or the application hits a, a certain uh, tipping point where the the ability to regress and test the application takes more time than than you know a CI CD pipeline would allow you to to do to do regular updates to your production application. That's where. Um, having uh, microservices makes a big difference in terms of being able to deploy new functionality and components without disrupting the the rest of the application. Now, I've read that a few of the companies that Nginx has worked with includes Netflix and GitHub and that BuzzFeed moved from a monolith to microservices relatively recently. Can you talk about the, the kind of advantages that sites or companies like that get out of microservices? Yeah, the some of the, the big benefits... One is that that you can separate out your development teams to be really focused on their area of concern. So, you know, if you have a team that's focused on, say, payments or billing uh, at at Netflix, for example, that team could could be building, you know, one or a few microservices that that manage the billing uh, aspects of of the application. They can have their own roadmap. They can have their own feature development process that that is independent of the rest of the organization, you know, as long as they have a clear contractual uh, relationship between the the other microservices that are are interfacing with the billing system um, and doing it effectively. So if you, you know, have versioning, if you have uh, a deprecation policy that everyone is aware of, um, you can be building out and deploying your, your microservices independently of the rest of the application. And so you're, you can focus on, on the new features. You can focus on really uh, optimizing the, the application uh, for the, the needs of that particular area, as opposed to you know, considering the, the, the entirety of the application and, and all the functional components that, that are part and parcel of that system. Um, the second is that that you can really scale the application much more easily with microservices. The statelessness of them, of the microservice, the fact that they they live independently of each other, so that that you know if there is a a surge in billing, for example, with you know to go back to that billing example, um, you can you can scale those those microservices 
as needed and then shrink them back down without having to to worry about uh, the you know video delivery component of of your microservice application. So, Chris, I think you've you touched upon this in in the first benefit you mentioned, but I wanted to ask you that aside from thinking about microservices benefits in terms of big picture corporate strategy or efficiency, what a move to microservices means for the individual developer. You mentioned that it allows developers to to focus more, right? Absolutely. And I think that's one of the big benefits of microservices. It's similar in a lot of ways to the the agile movement. Uh, the agile, one of the, the big benefits for developers around agile development is that, that you really have, you know, a couple of weeks to work on a feature or a piece of functionality. You're not trying to, to conceive of the entire application over, you know, a six month or a year long process. You're really focusing on trying to achieve, you know, two weeks worth of work. And in a similar way, microservices encapsulate, you know, a, a set of functions and a set of, of services that are, are constrained to, you know, a, a single set of concerns. So it's, you don't, you focus on that and you're, you can really optimize around that and you can really build a, a, a really powerful and, and, and complete system uh, that is hard to do in a larger monolithic application. As a developer, you also get to to uh, you know focus on 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 the things that that you might not be have worked on before, like networking, building out an API, consuming an API, considering how to to transfer data efficiently in a a, a networked environment as opposed to you know uh, in a, a VM you know memory to memory transfer. Uh, environment. You have to think of your application differently. So that's that's another benefit, I suppose, or 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 another consideration in the process of moving to microservices. Let me ask you one more question before we move to Nginx and the microservices reference architecture. I wanted to ask you about the impact of microservices on security. When there is a move to microservices, do you, do you actually have to focus on security more? You don't have to to. Focus on security more, but the 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 security uh, environment changes. Um, it is it, you know in a monolithic application, the security is is really around the outside of the. It's at the host level, so you you consider you know how to protect the host that the application is running on, and and that's the main attack surface that that the security team folk, you know is concerned about. In a microservice application, the the attack surface is is spread out uh, among all of the the services that are running in containers, and it's the network itself. The network becomes an attack surface and an area of concern in terms of attackers being able to penetrate the network and listen to all of the traffic between all of the different components and absorb the data through that attack surface. So the vector of penetration and, and the, the attack surface changes, but it doesn't, I wouldn't say it's greater. So Nginx has created the microservices reference architecture, which is designed to help companies or development teams create their own microservices applications. What is the microservices reference architecture? So the, the microservices reference architecture uh, initially was uh, a an in-house development effort to help us understand how Nginx could, should fit into a microservice environment. 
Nginx is, is, is used by a lot of companies in their microservice uh, applications. We're downloaded by many developers off of Docker Hub, for example. I think we're the, the second or third most downloaded uh, container off of, of Docker Hub. Um, and the microservices reference architecture was was our attempt to understand how we could could build a microservice application and help our customers, you know, improve things like performance, provide better security, uh, address issues and concerns like service discovery, build, you know, more robust health checks or circuit breaker pattern functionality within the environment. Essentially, we were looking at, at the high value uh, areas that, that we could try and, and help our customers um, and, and the world at large essentially address the concerns that, that, you know, or the issues that arise in shifting from a monolithic application to a microservice application. The reference architecture is an actual application. Um, it is uh, a photo sharing application ostensibly, um, similar to Flickr or Shutterfly. Essentially, you can upload photos to it, share them, uh, view them in, in albums, that sort of thing. We chose uh, that application uh, idea as, as the one sort of like the Java pet store back from back in the day for a number of reasons. One, uh, a photo sharing website is something that, that everyone is familiar with. They, they understand the concept of it. So there's no real learning curve in terms of, of how is this supposed to work? What does it do? Another reason is because it has some, some very powerful asymmetric computing requirements. Um, you know, on, on the one hand, you're dealing with very light payloads like user data and um, some naming, uh, some photo naming components. On the other hand, you have some very heavyweight uh, payloads like the actual images that you upload from your phone. You know, those can be multiple megabytes in and of themselves. And when they're expanded and actually, you know, taken out of a JPEG format and, and you know, fully rendered, they're, you know, 10, 20 megabytes in size. So we have these asymmetric compute requirements that forced us to think about, about how to deal with the microservices and, and the transfer of data within a microservice environment very differently than if it was, if everything was just a bunch of JSON payloads that were moving around. Um, and then finally, finally, the thing that, that, that we liked about, about the, the photo uh, environment was that we could make it really pretty because, you know, <laughs> get some good pictures and, and it looks really nice. Now, the reference architecture includes three different networking models, and I especially want to get into some detail about the one that's called the fabric model. But first, can you give us a quick overview of, of the three models? Sure. Essentially, we, we, as we were building out the, the reference architecture and figuring out how to address you know, various uh, issues and concerns around the Around building out the microservice, you know, the microservices and, and having them interact with each other, we realized that there were uh, essentially three networking areas that that needed addressing that were not that you know in a standard microservice uh, environment are not well addressed or 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 there aren't sophisticated solutions that that uh, that solve problems for you. And those three areas are the three models, essentially, that we came up with that are designed to, to address these areas are the proxy model, the router mesh, and then the fabric model. 
Um, and we'll start with the, the proxy model because that's, that's a pretty simple and straightforward one. Almost all microservices have some ability to manage uh, request and response via HTTP, you know, at some level or another. And typically, if you're running, you know, your code in in uh, in Java, you're you have some HTTP server like Tomcat or Jetty. If you're running in in Python, it's Flask. Go has its own system. Node uses Happy, for example. Um, all of these. HTTP servers are reasonable at dealing with, you know, uh, your standard types of HTTP requests, but they're not really designed for high volume internet traffic that's coming from around the world in all, from all different types of networks, from all different types of devices with good actors and bad actors. And we, we knew that, you know, many of our customers put Nginx and Nginx Plus in front of their microservice application to, to really try and address this variability in the kinds of, of internet traffic coming into the application. So the proxy model is, is exactly that. It's, it's a, an application or a, a service that sits in front of the, in front of your microservice application and uh, deals with all of the, the internet traffic coming into to the system. In Kubernetes, for example, that's called the Ingress controller, and we have uh, a, an open source version of the Ingress controller that you can use with Nginx open source or our commercial product um, to manage all of that traffic coming into the, the system. How about the, the router mesh model? So the router mesh is additive to the proxy model, and, and the fabric model is as well, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But where you have the proxy model managing traffic coming in and going out of the microservice application, the proxy model itself does not try and address the, the traffic within the microservice application. And obviously, you know, because microservices use, uh, use HTTP as the, the standard transport, and, uh, and connectivity me mechanism for communicating between the services, there's a lot of traffic there that could and should be managed. In you know, a standard microservice application, that is done you know, at a point-to-point -point basis uh, using the registry, for example, to, to do simple uh, round-robin load balancing. It's, it's not sophisticated at all, um, and it, it essentially relies on the service itself being able to connect from one service to another. The router mesh tries to provide a, a level of sophistication and, and power and uh, reliability into that internal traffic pattern. And, and what we do is we put um, a, a few instances of Nginx into the, the microservice application and have all of the traffic from one uh, service to another routed through that central router mesh system. Um, the advantages of that are that, that we can use more powerful load balancing algorithms that actually analyze the, the traffic that's happening between the services and optimize uh, the traffic requests across your microservice instances so that, you know, if service A needs to talk to one of the service, one of service B, um, one of the instances of service B, the router mesh can, can look at things like uh, which service is responding the fastest, which service has uh, the least connections available, which service is healthy, 
and be able to uh, route the traffic based on those dynamic algorithms and, and keeping score of, of all of those parameters in order to optimize the, the request load to the individual services. Um, and so the router mesh is, is designed to really try and, and elevate the load balancing that's happening within your microservice application and optimize it for performance. One of the other things that we can do is use, in our commercial product at least, use our, our uh, active health check system to automatically build in the circuit breaker pattern. So, so the circuit breaker pattern is uh, a design that is, is meant to uh, provide resiliency to the, your microservice application and to limit the damage that a problematic instance can have to the application. So um, to, to try and illustrate that specifically, uh, I can talk about a particular service we have in the microservice reference architecture. Mm -hmm. One of the, the components uh, or one of the services in the, the microservice reference architecture is the resizer service. Um, as you can imagine, you know, when you're uploading photos into the, the, uh, the MRA, those photos are, you know, typically 6,000 by 4,000 pixels in size. They're, they're huge. And uh, in order to display them in a, a page, you need to shrink, you know, shrink them to icon size and store those, those icons and, and maybe a medium size so that you don't have to render the entire thing when, when viewing the photos in a catalog. Um, so we have a service called the resizer service that, that does that. It essentially consumes the, the original image, resizes it down to a couple of smaller images and saves those and makes them available in the application. Obviously, that's a very uh, uh, compute intensive process. And one of the things that we discovered when we were doing load testing on the application was that the resizer could become so overloaded from all of the images being uh, resized within it, that not only would it cause the, the service itself to fail and the container would, would, would crash, but it could, it could become so compute intensive that it would take out the underlying virtual machine that we were running the, the service on with other services, you know, that were, uh, that were running in containers alongside it. So it could actually cause the entire VM to go down which then caused the orchestration tool to start wondering, hey, what happened to my VM? That was one of the hosts that I had a bunch of services running on. And it, it, was, it was a fairly catastrophic failure. And what we did was we built a, a health check into the resizer that would evaluate how much uh, memory was being used, because that was one of the, the key failure profile elements to the resizer that we had to evaluate in order to prevent it from, from having that catastrophic failure. So we have a health check that, that tells us if it goes above 80% of available memory to mark itself as unhealthy and to prevent any traffic from, from uh, being routed to it. So the router mesh can use that active health check capability to, to check to see if the resizer is, is uh, overloaded, is, has used too much memory, and stop all traffic from, from going to that, uh, that service until it recovers, and, and instead route it to another instance of the service, or even do things like, like you know, 
hold the, uh, the request until it's available again. Once the service is available, we actually have a feature called Slow Start, which allows you to um, uh, slowly start ramping up requests back to the service so you don't overwhelm it once it says, I'm healthy again, and then slamming it with you know a bunch of photos that make it unhealthy. So there's a lot of aspects to making that, that health check and uh, circuit breaker pattern work effectively uh, with the application. So, Chris, let's talk about the fabric model, and I especially wanted to ask you about load balancing. That's a that's a really interesting topic. You know, when when we first came up with the 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 fabric model, um, uh, we were talking to a number of the engineers here about about how we implemented it, and and a lot of them initially were were scratching their heads, saying, "Wait, what are you doing? It doesn't really make sense because." we were essentially flipping load balancing on its head. Most people are familiar with load balancing um, in a paradigm very similar to the router mesh. The router mesh, you know, with a centralized load balancer or, a, you know, a, an active pair or a, a set of, of load balancers that centrally manages that, that load balancing is the classic and traditional way that load balancing is done in an application. In the fabric model, we push load balancing down to the individual service level so that an instance of a service actually does all of the load balancing to the other services that it communicates with from that service so that, that there isn't load balancing, uh, a centralized load balancing function. Load balancing is distributed among all of the services individually. The reason that we do that, have all the load balancing distributed among uh, the, the different services, is because it means that all of the traffic going in and out of a service goes through Nginx, and Eng Nginx is the primary interface for, for that, that traffic. And Nginx, because it's, it is a, a constantly running HTTP server, um, can do things like establish and maintain connections between all of the other instances of Nginx that it's communicating with. Where that becomes a, a you know, a feature and is, is powerful is that we can actually, uh, maintain those connections with SSL so that, and it's actually TLS to be, um, to be, you know, kind of nerdy about it. Uh, we are, we're creating um, essentially, HTTP uh, VPN tunnels between all of the services that that you know any other service would utilize. So if if service A needs to talk to service B, C, and D, it can create and establish and maintain connections to all of the instances of services B, C, and D, and keep reusing those encrypted tunnels between the services for all of the traffic in and out of, of the uh, services. So I think that the, the key thing about the fabric model that um, is the fact that, that you know, we reuse the, the SSL connections uh, using HTTP Keep Alive, and that's, it's a very powerful, it, it, it essentially makes having encrypted networks uh, much faster than if you try and do it without having um, without a system like like the fabric model in place, uh, it essentially improves the the connectivity uh, over SSL by about seventy seven percent is what we found. 
Chris, just jumping back to something you mentioned when you were talking about the proxy model, you mentioned Kubernetes. And I wanted to ask you, where does or, or where can Kubernetes fit into the microservices movement? So Kubernetes is a, is a very powerful orchestration tool for managing the, the deployment and in instances of your microservices uh, within your application. Um, it gives a, it has a very powerful uh, microservice framework for organizing your microservices, for instantiating them, for uh, allowing them to communicate to one another effectively, for having network segmentation within the microservice application. And it provides a lot of, of very powerful services uh, for systems like Nginx to take advantage of in order to do traffic management within your microservice application. And we should mention that you can now download a new O'Reilly report called Kubernetes for Java Developers. It's sponsored by Nginx, and you can download it for free by going to the Resources Library section of nginx.com, and we'll have a link to that in the blog post that accompanies this episode. And Chris, if our listeners want to find out more about you or Nginx and the microservices reference architecture, where should they go? They should come to nginx.com and read more about the blog posts that we've put about the MRA. We have also just released the open source version of the Fabric model, and it's available on GitHub within the Nginx Inc. environment repositories. Okay, Chris Stetson, Chief Architect and Head of Microservices Engineering at Nginx. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jeff. I really appreciate it.